John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 763.ps10424, certificate number 14162, Masquerade. Crossword puzzles. I think you're on the record for the future. I do. As being a fan of the crossword. I do. I do enjoy them, and I think that I would enjoy them more if I didn't know that anyone else in the world was doing them better than I do. I see. So it's, you don't have to be the only one. Like no. The scenario is not that Will Shorts is mailing them to your house. No, other people can do them. They just must be inferior to you. Or they just have to struggle, at least. The thing that infuriated me about you standing in my living room that time, oh, so many years ago, saying, in the way that you do, where you're kind of looking down at the ground as though you're thinking about something else, and you said, yeah, I don't really ever have a crossword puzzle I can't solve. Um, that made me... Really mad. Crossword, and I, crossword privilege. And I continue to be mad. I continue to be mad about it. Every time I sit down in a crossword the, puzzle. Oh, it's not when you see me. It's when you see a crossword. I see a crossword and it's I both. think of you saying that you can solve every crossword puzzle. Like, does puzzle. my head appear spinning around you? John, just this like, one's easy to me. I really, really, really don't like you. Do you solve crosswords less now? Did I ruin it for you? No, I still oh, okay. really enjoy crosswords. Okay, and, well, I, and I like a hard one, uh, but I don't... Um, but you know that I struggle with with the hard ones. I I don't know all of their little their little games. I don't know all their little tricks. All their little wordplay yeah. and traditions and it's the traditions I think that you know that help you. But I don't think that's all. I think you know a lot of things, which is infuriating. No, there there are a lot of traditions. If they say some kind of car, it's going to be an Audi or something because that's the right. just the vowels have to be right. Right. They like Brian Eno. Yes, Brian yeah. knows the only 70s musician <laughs> in the crosswords. Or Yoko Ono, I guess. Right, they like, they're very avant-garde. And when, they're, when, they're, when, uh, when they're trying to be smart and contemporary, they'll put Amy Mann in there because, of course, she has four vowels yes, in her first she's, name. She's very lucky crossword-wise. <laughs> she's been blessed. By the crossword gods, uh, do, do you like the do you like the satisfaction of of solving the puzzle, or do you mm. like the grind? I like the grind. I mean, which is good, given your skill level. <laughs> 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 Go die in a fire. <laughs> uh, no, I enjoy. You know, I, I, if I get a crossword up to like the last three questions, and and I feel like the questions themselves are kind of, I mean, I will invalidate certain questions that are. Like, like you'll say, I don't have to do these clues. These are beneath me. Or or ones that are like the 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 NASCAR driver that won the 1974. It's just like I could look it up, but I'm not going to, and it's not a piece of information I'm ever going to. And if it crosses some, uh, uh, you know, Kazakhstani river, you don't care about. You're just going to leave that blank. Geography stuff. I will try and I'll try and uh, gut it out by solving problems around it. But you know, the thing about crossword is sometimes you'll get one where it's like a NASCAR driver is the horizontal and then the two vertical ones that would help you fill it in. We say across and down. Across and down. In the crossword world. (laughs) The the two down ones. The X axis and the Y axis. Are also like, 
you know, the name of some television yeah. star and uh, and uh, so three things. If one that, of them is BS, you're okay. But right. If they're both BS, if they're both BS, there's no way you I can triangulate. And I'll and I, but but I'm not somebody that will lay awake at night thinking there are three. There's a corner of a crossword puzzle that I didn't solve. I'll toss it right in the garbage can and start on the next one. Puzzle solving is very fun to me, and it's a real endorphin rush to feel like you did it. It's like it's like being finishing a task as a child and being praised by the teacher, except yeah. it's Will you Shorts instead. You like to check, check things off of a, a list. Oh, boy, do I ever. Yeah. And I don't, I don't. I never make a list, and I never check things off of it. Do you enjoy not checking things off of lists? No, because the problem, and I've discussed this, I guess, elsewhere, but the problem for me is that, that, that I cannot make a list of inconsequential things. The top of my list is always finish the great American novel and empty the dishwasher and, you know, determine like, the existence of God. And so when I, when I look at a list, like checking off empty the dishwasher gives me no satisfaction because, you know, like get a graduate degree is up there and it's in bold, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, it's a pinned tweet. And, uh, and so lists just, they give me no gratification. What, what about examples where the solving of puzzles kind of overlaps with real life and becomes more uh, tangible in a way? You know, have, do you enjoy well, you treasure I, hunts and scavenger hunts? And we did a. We, you you invited me to come with you and a small group of friends to do a, one of those trap rooms. Oh yeah, the escape room. Escape fad. room. Yes, that's that's the exact kind of thing I'm talking about. You're, then the puzzles are surrounding you. And we had a wonderful time in there. It was fun, right? It was, and I noticed that. Um, you're obviously super good at it. There was uh, there were quite a few people that were kind of working in conjunction with one another or kind of trying to collaborate. Yeah, often they give you multiple tasks at once so the group can and spread I, out and collaborate as you wish. I really preferred, like I kind of watched everybody for a minute, watched them all uh, maybe um, sort of split off. Mm -hmm. And then I looked around for the clues that everyone had either missed or were or had decided weren't important right now. And then I would, I kind of on my own dedicated myself to solving those little puzzles. And it ended up that I had, you know, I, I played a, a an important oh, role sure. in solving the, the puzzle room. You were batting cleanup there. Cause I was like, here's the key that you're looking Did for. Did anybody here's look at the, this mirror? Yeah, here's the, uh, this is the, the code word that you're going to put in there. I had totally forgotten <laughs> that. So just, just so the future can imagine there was a short lived, I believe fad where wealthy people would lock themselves into rooms and then try to get out in an hour right. by solving a series of, of kind of puzzles. It's puzzles a, it's that, a bit of a gauntlet that weren't presented to you as like, here's your next puzzle. Right. It's kind of embedded in the environment. Right. The one we did was themed around backstage at a stage magician's uh, performance. And when we finally solved all the little jigsaws and anagrams and whatnot, we managed to open his chest. And it, it turned out to be a horrifying entry into a second blood-spattered room where the magician sacrificed his victims. Right. It took a, it took a dark turn that escape room. <laughs> it really did. We were, cause you know, we got the, we finally got the fourth lock or whatever. And the door opened. We thought we were out. And instead like, oh, no. we, we summoned Beelzebub and yeah. Belial and Moloch. We Imagine did. a child's birthday party wandering into that second, <laughs> that second altar and hearing the chanting. And the second one was much more complicated because it did involve what you're saying. Like five people had to be in different parts of the room, all, coordinating with with a couple of people that were that were punching buttons on a on yes. a machine that you couldn't reach all sides of and yeah uh, you had to do it in in tandem so there were some blind like alleys right we we put we put a bunch of things up on a chalkboard <laughs> and then realized oh no we needed to and I, I I got in I got on the bad side of one of your friends. Yeah, I, I was going to say my friend's wife is still uh, a little annoyed because she had something kind of half done on her system, and you were like, no, 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 we got to do it like this, and you flipped everything back over, and she was like, mm. and it turned out right that you, that that's how you needed to solve the puzzle. It had to be blank, yeah, and then you would solve it by flipping. So having it all flipped over was was preventing us from moving forward. We need forward. to have you and her on the show and really, I think, hash this out. But I remember feeling like time was of the essence and I did the terrible, terrible thing, which was I just said, oh, this is the wrong direction. You're a, you're a middle-aged white man. And she you was like, in. but 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 I was almost done with that. But we and did I, get out. We got out. In the nick of time. That did not end the omnibus because we were not trapped in a bloodstained satanic temple. But I did feel bad that I, that I man- 
uh, mansolved <laughs> over the top of her her uh, her misdirection. That's a perfect example because the appeal of that fat, and maybe it will not be short-lived. Also, people get annoyed when I say short-lived, but yeah, I know. who cares? I know. Om- omnibus is both plural and singular. <laughs> people got mad at you for saying omnibi. Omni- I didn't, though. I said omnibuses. Omnibuses. Because omnibi... Is not the plural of omnibus. You're waiting at the omnibus stop. You don't see a single omnibus, and then two, two omnibuses, omnibuses come at once. Are uh, downloaded at once, right? Uh, because there's something visceral about being in that environment and being able to, you know, outwit your environment with your keen senses and keen intellect. Uh, it's a real, it's a real thrill, and I think it must be something very deep in our atavistic. Hind brain. I, I thought about this when I uh, found out about the sport of geocaching. Mm-hmm. Our, our decadent society was so close to doom that we we started hiding little Tupperwares in the woods, and then using, you know, this billion dollar satellite array to find the little Tupperwares. And then you take it out and you stroke the little ceramic turtle or whatever. You and do put nothing. It back, There's right? no actual prize. Yeah, you write your name down as if to say I was here. Right. Uh, and it ties into our love of exploration and the fact that there's not a lot of that in, I love in our era. the idea of geocaching, but realizing that the whole sport was just to find the Tupperware and there was no, you didn't even get a Tootsie Roll, Right. Um, I turned against it. The thing about historical treasure hunts is there were actual prizes. Now, most of these treasure hunts were fictional. There's no evidence of pirates ever making a map with an X between really? the rocks that look like a skull. No, it's just a... It's just a fiction trope from Robert Louis Stevenson and, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle. And, you know, it's children's adventure stuff. Pirates never actually did that. They took their money and then they just went and traded it and bought rum and whores. Yes. They weren't like, let's just leave this on a beach and with a craftily crafted set of clues. Although they did, there, there is quite a bit of gold buried at the bottom of the ocean where ships uh, cracked up or were sunk. Yes. And there are still but that ca- doesn't seem intentional. And there are still a few cases of people, you know, leaving gold somewhere and then, you know, the directions get lost or the, you know, the, the, the clues get garbled. And so there are a few kind of white whale treasure hoards out there for moderners. But And you do find every once in a while in the English countryside a gold trove of some sort of pre-Norman conquest. Some group of Celts. Celtic guy with a badly hammered crown. Yeah, who's, they, they stuffed all of their their uh, scepters down into a, a well to protect them from the Norse invaders, from the Danalaw. <laughs> right. You don't, want the, you don't want the Danalaw knocking on your door. Abolish Danalaw. Um, but I think it's because we evolved needing to look for things to survive. Oh. Hmm. And in the same way that you know, things like food and sex become pleasurable to your brain or else the species ends. That's a super good pop psychology theory. I'm sure that the other kids in the sophomore uh, debate society are going <laughs> to flock to your idea. I think my idea is, is not just that. I think it's universally held that that's the reason why the brain takes pleasure in something that has a lot of sugar in it. Because if you don't metabolize sugar, you don't last the winter, right? Right. Um, so and looking for things in the same way perpetuated the species. You got to find the tracks of the delicious buffalo, or you've got to find those little berries that don't make give you diarrhea. You got to find the jute that makes the good underwear. So looking for things in the undergrowth is how we came out of the trees. But now there's nothing to look for anymore. So we have to invent these little these know. little puzzles. What there, do you look for? Well, like, there, there's a bustle in your hedgerow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You got to go out to the hedgerow and tell one of your friends to hide a bustle there. Uh-huh. I guess uh, you can look for paper clips in your junk drawer, and that's a very that is very exciting when you actually find the well. So this the stapler. is this is the thing that that is maybe the uh, the driving force of my hobby of thrifting. Yes, exactly. Thrifting is the perfect example of this. Yeah, there's nothing there that I need, but there are all kinds of treasures that, in a lot of in a lot of cases, it's just me, my, and my. Per- particular combination of sort of knowledge and interest that that imbues certain objects with this with the tremendous value that there are people all around me who have just gone right past that thing and and said like that is nothing to me you need them to be worse crossword solvers and thrifters than that's you. right but there but i know somewhere you know somewhere in seattle right now there is someone who just died a little bit because i got that thing and they didn't do you need them to see you? Do you need them to be in the next aisle? No, no, I don't. In fact, I, I used to, uh, I, I, uh, 
I dated a girl for a long time who was a um, professional thrifter. She you could make a living reselling the good stuff. She could, and and this was back when there was a lot of good stuff at thrift stores, and reselling it was more difficult. There wasn't an eBay yet, mm-hmm. and we would go out and and go to the thrift stores far and wide. You know, up to Monroe and and uh, down to Puyallup, and you know, doing the whole region. And she would see other thrifters that, and they knew one another. And there was this begrudging, you know, they'd pass each other in the Lewis. aisle and just be exactly, exactly <laughs> like, oh, hello, Megan. And they would both have shopping carts full of stuff and they would, you know, glare at one another because one of them found the original Air Jordans and the other, you know, and, and sometimes if they were friendly, they would stop and compare like, oh, look, I found this original Kinks tour T-shirt. Oh, nice one. But they were frenemies at best. Oh, frenemies at best. And then they, you know, they there was a there was a marketplace for that stuff in town. And when you t- and when you talk about the advent of eBay, like I've noticed that I can now I don't have to scrounge anymore. Like if there's a if there's a white whale for me, if there's some first edition book or something I want, I can go online and pay fair market price. Well, and that's and that's not fun. I, I, I don't want that. I want to be in the used bookstore kind of pawing through the, the junk trying to find the diamond in the rough. Yeah, you find that first edition and then you look at the title page and realize it was a book of the month club first edition and that's not worth <laughs> anything. <laughs> but my daughter's mother yesterday got a package in the mail and opened it up and it was a <clears throat> a fancy purse. And I said, "What's? why would you, it's a used purse. And she was like, oh, but it's really fancy. And I was so confused i was like this is why we go to thrift stores to find this fancy purse for like four dollars she's like well you can't do that anymore everybody knows what the fancy purses are and you have to there's this secondary market for them and apparently a louis vuitton used purse is still 1200 bucks or something she was like she doesn't buy that kind that's of the invisible hand so you were trying to cheat capitalism with your with your Air Jordan scrounging, yeah. And capitalism caught up with you by inventing the internet. It did. It said, "Oh no, no, no! Oh no, 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 no!" So we don't have treasure hunts anymore, but we've inherited this literary idea that they should be out there, that there should be a treasure chest at, at the end of the beach, and there should be Confederate gold behind the bricks of the fireplace. Do you have a fantasy of a of a thing that is like? A thing you dream of possessing that you would never buy, but that you hope to find. What is the thing that you hope to find? That's a great. In a hole. That's a great question. It would. Mine would probably be not in a hole, but in a used bookstore. Right. It would be. It would be the sun also rises. Uh, original print or something. Original yeah. Printing. What yeah, would it be or, though? Or some. Maybe it's just some book I had as a kid that now I can't find. Or it's the kind of thing where it, do, you, do you? I actually have dreams where I am going through the shelves of some kind of you know, thrift store or a Goodwill or used bookstore or something. And I, I finally find that item. I, yeah. you know, I don't even, I don't even know what it would be. It's, I have so many of those I books. Have as a kid. Definitely. I definitely have books where I feel like this is the only extant copy. Yeah. And I found it at a, at a place like that. And, and it would not be fun to buy on eBay. I really no. would have to run across it. Yeah. And no one else would. And I, you know, because that, the hunt is illusory in a way. You don't want the thing, you want the hunt. You want the hunt. And you want that, that thrill, yeah. that thrill of opening the, thrill the of finding, opening the wall, the hole in the wall, and inside is, uh, is the gangster's gold. So having, you know, having that idea that the world is full of hidden, numinous objects and yet never coming across one is a frustration. Mm-hmm. And it led to a particular fad in the late 70s into the early 80s that briefly swept Britain and then the world uh, of armchair treasure hunts. Mm. You know, something you can solve mostly uh, at your dining room table with uh, maybe one of those little jeweler's eyepieces and uh, a couple reference works that everyone has and your your good English ingenuity. Were these like actual treasures, like the lost treasure of the Sierra Madre and the clues were supposed to already be there in the in the journals of Francis Drake, these were, these are all manufactured treasure hunts. Oh, okay. There, there is there is a there is a physical buried treasure. Oh, the, it was real. Yes, uh, the story begins with a, a British artist of the late seventies, a painter named Kit Williams, who uh, you know was kind of the, the the new hot painter on the scene. Uh, he painted in this kind of uh, style he had, that had come down to him, I think, from the Northern Renaissance of these very detailed, hyper real canvases where he would, you know, paint an underpainting on gesso and then gradually build it up with layers of translucent paint. Hmm. And just the layering of it was an incredibly laborious process, but it made for these canvases where 
it almost seemed like you could reach in and touch things. Uh-huh. It had a real dimensionality to it. Like if you look around the side, you could see the so very you know more real than real. And his subjects were kind of fantastic and whimsical and very British. In interviews with the guy, he's um, like a cat holding an umbrella. <laughs> exactly, more like a badger. Oh yeah, sure, of course. I'm <laughs> the, sorry. the cat is the cat is clearly an import from the continent. <laughs> this is it's going to be a fox or a badger. Uh-huh. Hedgehog. Or yeah, it's exactly. It's all hedgehogs all the way down. Um, and uh, he in interviews with him now he's got a beard and he kind of looks like a village hermit. Type. He's got the Tom York thing where his eyes are looking at, at both Scotland and Ireland at the mm-hmm, same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he appears to encompass all of, all of nature, the wheel and the maypole. And uh, he kind of seems like, he's a, like he has secret knowledge that we do not because he's an anchorite living in his little thatched cottage. And he speaks to the fairies, maybe. He's, he's got a bristly beard now like Alan Moore. Um, but he was a remarkable, a remarkable painter. But, you know, you don't take the world by storm as a young London painter. And uh, at one point, uh, he chats with a, I think, Tom Mashler, who's a a publisher at Jonathan Cape, a British publishing house, who tells him children's books are, are, uh, that's that's where an artist can actually make a check. Oh, sure. You've got this beautiful style where you're painting badgers and whatnot. Kids would go nuts for this, write a cute children's book. And he politely says, yes, uh, thank you for your suggestion. But after the party, he does what no one could have suspected, and he holds himself up for three years working on a children's book. Whoa. Without telling this guy, by the way. <laughs> Three years later, he calls him and says, hey, uh, I've got six of the canvas, six of the paintings done. And Tom says, for what? And he says, remember we were talking about that book? And Tom says, no. <laughs> it's funny he didn't realize uh, that uh, that in the, our contemporary world that you can make a children's book in Mac paint uh, now in like an hour and a half. And I'm sure it breaks his heart, too. <laughs> Because he's still stroking his canvases with these little tiny, I watched a BBC4 documentary, these little tiny brushes. And uh, anything that, you know, any labor-saving device, I'm sure, pains him immensely. Um, But the idea he had was uh, that the book would be a treasure hunt. Um, You know, he's connected to the land and history and, as you say, the the badly hammered scepters and, and... Vikings buried in boats that perhaps are in, in mounds and drumlins all over the United Kingdom. Right. Guys <laughs> that, that fell or were pushed into a peat bog. Things that were not as good as Stonehenge. That's, the, that's their whole archaeological thing. Uh, and so he wanted uh, to make a book of, of kind of beautiful paintings that would help you find a real treasure that he would hidden. And he came up with kind of a nominal plot about a magic rabbit who wants to help the sun find the moon or the moon bring her gifts to the sun or something like that. Right. Stuff that, that turn all of our children into little pagan animists. <laughs> right. Good little Anglican <laughs> children all turned in. It wasn't the clash. It was this book about a damn rabbit. But anyway, the, the, the story is just a pretense to hide a bunch of elaborate clues and red herrings because his idea was that he would really hide an elaborately fashioned rabbit somewhere in the United Kingdom and whoever found it would keep this this bejeweled rabbit that was worth five thousand pounds. Wow, really? Yeah, or or maybe a cash equivalent or something. So you have to make well, and this is something I've always wondered about puzzle makers. Mm-hmm. How do you make a puzzle? Because it must be really frustrating to work long and hard on a on a super hard puzzle, and then it turns out that it's something that anybody, any colorblind person can solve. Right or or that, yeah. that it gets solved in the first hour. I mean, when you when you throw a million monkeys at a problem, the problem gets solved. I, I did one, I actually did one of these puzzle hunts in Smithsonian Magazine a few years ago that was themed around American history, and I liked how it turned out. But um, the way that they published it online, unbeknownst to me, kind of created a way to back solve the puzzle. Right. Such that when the when the final puzzle was printed, people already had ninety nine percent of the answer lined up and ready to go. And so there was just a rush of dozens of people submitting the right answer. And the lesson I took away is that the mob is always smarter than you. Right. So a hundred times smarter than you. It doesn't matter if you were on Jeopardy. They just do the they do a, a reverse image search on Google, and and you're like, no, do it the other way, do it the fun way. You can yeah. So and and that's actually what happened in the case of of this book, Masquerade. He this uh, Kit was a fine artist, but not a puzzle guy. And he did not, he was not one of these British people that does the cryptic crossword every Sunday and loves the little riddles in the daily telegraph. He he did not have, he wanted to make, it was a children's book. He wanted the puzzles to be fair enough that, um, 
maybe a 10-year-old would solve it, or maybe Stephen Hawking would solve it. You know, it, it, it was not for puzzle nerds. He wanted it to be for everyone. Right. And if you look at the, the, paint, the paintings today are just, are just gorgeous, but they're incredibly detailed. And his style was perfect for this because he would load the whole thing with clues and misdirection. And there, there were no instructions. You just got these beautiful paintings and said, hey, somewhere in the United Kingdom, there's a rabbit. It's going to be on public ground. A jeweled rabbit. A jeweled rabbit is hidden somewhere on, on public property. And this book will, will unlock Concealed the within, yes. Wow. And, and there were little false clues. People fixated on a little painting, uh, an aerial painting of British countryside in which you can see a football pitch that's been divided into squares and numbers painted on them. And uh, people knew that had to be the answer because there's numbers on the ground. This is X marking the spot. And it turns out the numbers were chemical elements, fluorine, aluminum, selenium. And when you spelled them out, it said something like false clue, move on. Or <laughs> so you could spend years on your theories. Uh-huh. There, was a, there was a fish that said 6,000A, and 6,000 angstroms is the uh, wavelength of red light. That's literally a red herring right there. <laughs> the people with their little magnifying glasses were, oh, so were he, obsessed with so this. So he, he has a sense of humor, and he is... He's a wordplay guy himself. Yes, and there's there's words are written around each picture. Some of the letters are highlighted, so there's obviously levels of concealed um, message and uh, you know cryptic stuff going on. There's there's layers to unveil. It's just irresistible to the right kind of brain. And uh, the night before, you know, well, not the night before, but you know, in the in the weeks leading up to this uh, contest beginning. Uh, he dis- did that coincide with the publishing of the book, like the day yes. it came out, and a huge media rush. And <laughs> so the funny thing is, this is the late seventies, which is one of many kind of semi dystopian times in the United Kingdom of the twentieth century, right? Uh, in which um, unemployment was off the charts and labor relations were bad. And it as seemed a- like the end times were nigh. Pretty constantly in the 20th century. That's what the, if you watch The Crown, that's the kind of the subtext of the show. <laughs> the Britain almost fell apart every five years. I thought that the, kind of the subtext of The Crown was that the royal family were amazing. <laughs> really, even though every, they They're were troubled. All, even though they were really sad all the time, at the end of the day, they were amazing. It was their stiff upper lip that got them through all those shopping center openings. Right. They're heroes. Uh, Except for Prince Philip, who is awful. <laughs> He's, uh, he's, have you seen the new ones? He's kind of sympathetic. Getting there. He's getting there. The, the Anglican church tries to save his, his putrid, corrupt soul. Right. Uh, the, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so there's a labor strike. There's a massive media strike. The same week the book is released, the, uh, I think the Observer is set to do a big excerpt and get people excited. And there's a BBC documentary. And the same week that media rush happens, all the competition is off the air due to, due to labor Oh. Unrest. So the, the Sunday Times is not published. The Observer is the only option. ITV is off the air. BBC is the only option. So essentially, there's... Only, Everyone is focused. State media is looking at this book called Masquerade. <laughs> and, uh, and so then the hair has been hidden. Uh, many years before, Kit and a girlfriend had a picnic uh, somewhere in Bedfordshire. And, uh, and he, he found this spot with, with a, you know, this perfect spot. And he stuck his penknife in the ground... And then stuck a magnet, you know, in the in the spot left by his penknife. So later, with a, with a, with another magnet, he could find this exact perfect spot. And uh, in the dead of night, uh, he takes the hair to this field in Bedfordshire. What, so, what is the what's the origin story of the hair? It's a it's a it's a fancy rabbit. It's a fancy. It's a it's beautiful. He's he's a. If you look at his modern work, he's often kind of painting into weird frames and altarpieces. He likes the work not just to be a window into a world, but to actually look like an artifact. Uh-huh. So he's a jeweler as well. The hair uh-huh. is a has dangling pieces with little wheels and gears, and its eyes are moonstones, and it's inlaid with mother of pearl, and it's it's got a it's got a ruby on it, and it jingles mm. when it's held. But he uh, he packs it in he he seals it in wax and puts the whole thing into a terracotta. Uh, kind of uh, artisanal-looking pouch because to foil metal detectors, oh. it's ceramic. It's like the the ceramic Glock in uh, in the in the Line of Fire movie, uh-huh. or you could take on the plane. And it says, "I am the keeper. I am the keeper of the jewel of the masquerade, which lies waiting safe inside me for you or eternity, because maybe it'll never be found. You know, right. is it going to be found in six weeks or is it going to be found in eight hundred years when they build a shopping center there? Right." And, and Queen Elizabeth, age 500, comes to open it. <laughs> uh, so so what, did the rabbit 
itself have clues embedded in it or with it that would allow you to back uh, – uh, would allow a person 500 years from now no, to it, find the source of the – The accidental solver just finds a, a fake leather pouch made of ceramics uh-huh. filled with wax and then this astonishing rabbit that appears to come from no period at all. Uh, which oh. happens with geocaching. People will find an accidental geo. Often, if you go to the geocaching website, people will be like, hey, I found this thing in a tree stump during a hike, and then I went online to see what the heck geocache number PK2186 is, you know, and, and that's how they get involved. So you could potentially find it accidentally, uh-huh. and which, again, we'll play into our story. Uh, his publisher realizes he should have a witness to go with him to, to, to do the burial. He refuses to take a camera crew. He's very secretive. Uh, They want the Archbishop of Canterbury. They want the governor of the Bank of England or whatever. But they settle for Bamber Gascoigne. Ah. If you were from Britain, you would know the name. He's he's essentially their Alex Trebek. Right. He's an academic who hosted University Challenge sure, for decades. Sure, I remember him. Did so, you were you ever on University Challenge? No, but I love I love yeah. that you show. You were on QI, love, weren't you? No, Hodgman's been on QI. Right, but right, they never right. have they never have Americans except for like the one weird American that lives in the UK now and right, right, right. and says and says all the words but in an American accent, so uh, it sounds weird. Or he, <clears throat> he just uh, it's Rich Hall and he just does it all in Snickers. <laughs> hey, yeah, wasn't Rich, Rich Hall's been on QI? He is that guy, right? Rich Hall is he's their resident, huge in England. He's, he's their, their resident American. He's their American like funny man. When John Hodgman told me he'd been on that show, I was very mad because yeah. I feel like I have a good QI resume as well. Yeah. They, they never reached out. I know it's infuriating. But I, I love those British quiz shows. And Bamber Gascoigne was kind of their, the guy. So he and Bamber dig the hole, lay in the, lay in the hair, fill it up and, uh, and uh, Kit Williams brings a Tupperware and hands it to get Bamber and says, here, drop this on top. He has, he has brought from his home in, I think, Gloucestershire, a, uh, a cow pie that he's going to put on top. Oh, I don't, clever. To d- discourage curiosity seekers and to hide any signs of digging. Although, does this area also have cows or would it be a completely, like... Uh, out of place. Cow Is it a clue? <laughs> yeah, right. It's like I brought uh, eagle turd from the from uh, Alaska. You could see somebody dipping in a finger, like Sherlock yeah. Holmes, yeah. and being like. Hmm. Watson, these are Guernsey cattle, only found on the Isle of Guernsey. This is our spot. Fetch the spade. Uh, and so Bamber Gascoigne instructed, uh, so instructed, drops it from the height of a cow's oh, rectum. In order to create a splat. Yeah, the, the, a realistic <clears throat> splat. And then the media blitz begins. And within two days, Jonathan Cape sells out of this book and has to go back to press. Yeah. And they go back to press again and again. They sell one million copies Whoa! of Masquerade. So this was this uh, whole ploy. Go work on this for three years. It's and, a, it is a whole ploy. Uh, it's a whole ploy. Yes, it's literally a whole, a whole ploy. And the Hoi Ploy loved the whole ploy. <laughs> um, uh, it, it paid off. Yes, Jonathan Cape makes jillions of dollars. Uh, and Kit Williams becomes a celebrity. He's a you know this village hermit suddenly on chat shows and is sent around the world because uh, you know even though it's hidden someplace in the UK that has not stopped a bunch of Americans from of course. you know <laughs> reading the book and being like aha look it's got to be under Nelson's column <laughs> you didn't have to dig it up you had to send Kit a letter and tell him where you'd found it oh um, in hindsight that's a terrible idea he gets hundreds of letters yeah why would you not insist that people go dig it up. Oh, because he wanted to keep people from digging up uh, people's lawns. I think it, there was a legal issue. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, to combat ableism. You know, you want yeah, everyone sure. to be able to... It, it's an armchair hunt. But yes, I think there was a legal concern because what did happen was Britain got dug up. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of little holes appear. A Derbyshire woman opens her door and there's a frogman wanting to dredge her lake. Uh, a, a woman who was unfortunate enough to, to have... <laughs> if you had bought the house with the lake, that's your future. Uh, a woman who had the misfortune to have a topiary shaped like a rabbit had somebody just coming by every hour on the hour oh, being like, I found the rabbit. Of course. Because it was all amateurs. These were not puzzle people who understood what the aesthetics would be. These were doofuses being like, I've got it. It's Stonehenge in the middle of Stonehenge. Let's go. <laughs> um, a Swiss tourist nearly drowns in Cornwall when he's uh, pushed up. Against, he lowers himself off a cliff to find what he thinks is the perfect spot. And almost gets splatted against the rocks. So, are they finding the perfect spot based on uh, having digested all the clues, or are they find? Are they just like, where would I hide a rabbit? The book is so rich in clues that you can grasp onto any one thing. Um, a uh, there's an American named 
in Bamberg Gascoigne's book about the the fad, he this guy refuses to let him use his name. It's an American named Richard Dale, pseudonym Richard Dale, who really goes off the deep end because he becomes convinced the book has hidden meanings that are visible only to him. Oh boy! This is a guy who always had the potential for these kind of delusions and sure. possible schizophrenia, but but he becomes he Mansons. The, yes, the book is what brings it out, and so suddenly he uh, has all these delusions. He in London, he finds a, he goes to London because airlines are offering, you know, here's a cheap ticket and a free shovel. And so Americans no! are heading across the Atlantic in droves on this British Airways deal. He finds a manhole. He goes down a manhole and uh, finds a, a rock that he says, says KW, but no one can see it. You know, his delusions become increasingly elaborate. He becomes convinced that Agatha Christie has created this puzzle for him in, in her last act. Right. And so he needs to read all her works and find out if you take the first letter of each second paragraph. You know, he really goes down literally a rabbit hole Although that, into insanity. That, that feels like at least it would keep him from roaming around with a shovel trying to uh, dig up Nelson's column <laughs> if, he's, if he has to read all about Agatha Christie's books. Yes, yeah, so you really want that guy to have offline tools. But um, <clears throat> Kit Williams is getting hundreds of letters a day. Uh, many from the same American woman who's just decided to send in every latitude and longitude combination in the British Isles, and one of them will be right. She spends much more in postage than the fair market value of the rabbit, and that seems, annoys poor Kit. <clears throat> that's really annoying to me, too. That's the American spirit. you got to brute force this thing it, with a little Yankee ingenuity and hard work. I know you and I have talked about the, the trivia game uh, on the seat back television of Delta Airlines. Correct. And and you're going to talk about this woman again. She's your she's your bet noir. Yeah, she really is. She still 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 flabbergasts me. At remind people her trivia crime. Well, the, uh, I was doing the trivia uh, game, and I was <clears throat> I was you know kind of handily beating everyone on the aircraft because it was a um, it was a situation where you could it was a cross ocean flight or something, and everyone could play. From their various seatbacks, it was, and you would see, oh, twenty eight C is just killing me. Yeah, right. You could, you could, um, you could compete against your passengers, and she watched me win for a while, and then logged on to the system and started uh, just copying my answers. I mean, she was my we and we were in in a, a fun conversation with each other. I liked her, and of course, her copying my answers didn't affect me at all because she was always four seconds behind. But um, but why she would do it, I never understood. She played the rest of the flight with me, just 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 copying my answers, and and I never, I don't understand what would drive a person, why they would think that was fun. Because we like the hunt, and yeah. they like the prize. They like the prize. When I, I when I did college quiz bowl, uh, a few on a few occasions, people hacked our website in novel ways, in hopes of getting the questions in advance for some tournament just so they could show up and say answers they already knew for a tournament with no prize where the only fun is trying to figure out the clues and they were robbing themselves of literally the only fun part <laughs> well of the, a prizeless quiz bowl tournament although they were having the fun of the of the hacking maybe that's <clears throat> it maybe that's it but to send in to to just brute force a, a, a solution like that is so against every spirit of the it really is thing. like the computer being taught to to beat you at chess just by looking at every move, right. you know, like I'm not going to figure out your beautiful, beautiful handcrafted paintings of rabbits and, and queens and badgers. I'm just going to send you a bunch of numbers on a postcard. Although this computer as bet noir is your little, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. You, your enemy is the lady on the plane beating at trivia. Mine is a $10 million IBM supercomputer. I have a better supervillain than you. You do for sure. <laughs> we need to put the two of them together. Who would win? Watson versus that lady on the plane in 26B. The problem with the lady on the plane is that she's copying me, so it right. would be me against Watson. And we know she's not bright because she's, she's in a middle seat. Right. If she's oof, next to you. Oof. She didn't book early enough. We've never, we've never pitted you against me, though, except that we do every single day. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Have we ever been on a flight that had the trivia game? No. I don't know how you could do better than me, but if you could, it would probably be It would you. just be a tie every time. We would just have the perfect score. I think you'd have that because time. you're good at the button. So you'd be But on a plane you can't do it because your your thumb is on the touchscreen is is bumping the seat in front of you. Right. And I'm too deferential. Right. You'd be like, I don't want to disturb sir, sir, the And I'm like, kapow, kapow. The anyway. um and other people, by the way, speaking of people showing up at poor Kit's house, at one point, just people walk out of the woods. He's an unlisted guy, but people track him down in the village and just wander into his house in the dead of night, you know, and he's confronted by these men covered in dirt. And he's like, what, what do you want? I'm calling the police. And he's like, no, 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 you don't have to tell us where it is. We just want to know 
How deep is it? We're down 18 feet. <laughs> and, and, and is it in the introduction to the book that that the puzzle should be able to be solved by any 10-year-old? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think uh, So all this like digging digging down 18 feet, people just didn't read the third paragraph of the intro. They just weren't puzzle people. Puzzle people would know aesthetically this this has got to mean this and this is how the pieces have to be rearranged or it's not satisfying and smart. But these people were just doofuses and they were just they but they had a shovel. Right. And that's the great equalizer in our day. <laughs> just like after the, when the zombies come, <laughs> anybody with a shovel is president. True. Um, the uh, I have them hidden all around the house. Three years go by. In which, no. In which no. So he calibrated it very well. But, but, but there are actual puzzle people that surely, because I, yes, my, it's, it's got to be catnip to them. Yeah. My experience of puzzle people is that they're just waiting for puzzles. There's, there aren't enough puzzles exactly. in the world. One all, a day is too few. All, all these people that are trying to solve the Enigma machine, like why, why did this not direct all their attention? Or why did it? Maybe they were all on the Zodiac letters yeah, at this time. That's right. No, I think you're right. There were a lot of them, and the 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 painting was just so dense. Oh. And he had he had not come because he had not come out of puzzling. He was an outsider artist in every sense. This was a naive outsider art in terms of puzzle construction. Oh, so he didn't do any of the he didn't follow any of the conventions that they would have tried. The solution turned out to be very smart, and I'm going to spoil it because Uh-oh. because the the pa- it's, all, it's already happened. The the, the the rabbit was dug up in 1982. Um. If you the, there were a bunch of cute animals in the paintings, and if you followed, if you drew a line from the the eye of every animal through its front paw, its its longest fit, hand or foot or whatever, uh, your line would wind up at one of the letters in the border surrounding the painting, and that was it. That was the whole solution. If you could just draw those lines, so a child could do it. And there were there were clues throughout, kind of suggesting. That you you needed to look, and you, you, the direction of gaze was important, and and uh, so it, it played fair. And then you put all those uh, letters together, and the letters it? spelled each page spelled a different word depending on the number of animals that were in each canvas. Catherine's long finger over shadows, earth buried, yellow amulet, midday points the hour in light of equinox. Look you. The book is Welsh and says, look you at the end. The reason why the, the syntax is garbled is because the first letters of all those spell close by Ampthill, a, a village not to, in, not to, in Bedford, for Bedford, for It's Fletch. Fletch lives there. Doctor. So if you go to Ampthill and you find the statue of Catherine of Aragon and you find the place where her finger points at the equinox at the at the spring or fall equinox you know this because the, the shadow is the same so this at uh, midday at noon midday so having figured out the puzzle you then needed to wait for the spring equinox or fall equinox the next equinox <laughs> it's the same light oh okay or so you what you could have done you could have written him a note the the rules to the puzzle the publisher's rule said send us the solution and if you're close enough we'll tell you and we can go dig it up but these uh two physics teachers in january of 1982 try the eye-to-hand thing. And, and a, a, years have gone by, and a supplemental clue has been printed in the Sunday Times that emphasizes the um, the uh, the eye direction angle. And so how did they... But how, how did they arrive at that solution? Did, what, they, did, they, 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 you know, they've tried a thousand things related to eyes and looking in direction, and as they connect eyes and hands, on one of the canvases, they get the word amulet, and they're like, oh, that's a treasure is. hunt word. Uh-huh. Like, we've done it. And they get the whole message. They realize where it must be in Amtil. They find the Catherine statue, um, but they can't. Inst- and they could have written a letter to Kit Williams and won the puzzle, and right. won the hair. But they wanted to go dig it up. Um, maybe they weren't clear on the rules. Maybe they just wanted that visceral thrill. Of course, here, here, I would want to. You dig would it want up to too. dig it up. Yeah. And they're like, "We're physics professors. We can do the math. This is where the shadow would be." But it's tricky. The ground's not level, so the first time they can't find it. The second time they come back with an inclinometer to measure the angle of the ground, which they think will pr- improve their trigonometric math of where Catherine's finger would be. But did Kit have the technology to know, or is he was he, he just, was just generally? He was there on the equinox having a picnic and mm. stuck his penknife in the ground at right. noon. Right. He uh, he apparently had had foreseen all this, and by the and there's a complicated series of events which ends with them deciding to wait for the next equinox in March, and. 
by the time it rolls around, the hair has been found by a different figure, a mysterious figure called Ken Thomas, who uh, digs up the hair, presents it to the publisher. How did he find it when he was not... Uh, when he he didn't have the equinox to work. His with. story is odd and keeps changing. Uh, he he completely cops to not figuring out the whole acrostic uh, riddle thing. Um, but there's within the book there's a line that says uh, one of six of eight, which is supposed to be a gentle clue leading you to Catherine of Aragon, who was the first of the six wives of Henry the Eighth. So he, uh, in his story, Ken says he went to Catherine of Aragon's, you know, some you know, monastery that was her birthplace or death place or whatever, and that didn't pan out. And then he remembered that there was a statue to her, statue to her in this village he'd been once, and his dog just happened to pee on a particular spot. And when he, I don't know if he took that as a sign or if he feels that his dog has some kind of urinary sixth sense for rabbit. It was a divining rod. Exactly. <laughs> he held his dog's legs like a dowsing rod. And when the dog peed, he started to dig. And so he has this very unlikely story of how he found the hair. And he's kind of a elusive figure. He resists showing up. When, they, when the publishers try to meet with him, instead he's not in the hotel lobby, but a friend has left a note saying... Here's the deal. He's a puzzleman himself. Yeah, he's well, he's a he's an enigma. Right. Who is he? Who is this guy? He uh when they want him to when they say contractually you have to be on TV to collect the prize, he shows up but he's wearing a scarf covering his face. You know, they want him to walk through how he found it. But, but the prize is the hair, so he already has the prize, right? Yeah, I think you I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you got to keep the hair if maybe there's an additional additional cash prize, I think. Let me divert you for just a second. Okay. Was this a good children's book? Was there like a little story about a bunny and stuff that kids could enjoy? It would work on that level. Because Kit's an imaginative guy who's into narrative and connected with the British countryside and loves Alice in Wonderland and all the data points you would expect. So it wasn't just a bunch of uh, garbled clues. I mean, like if six were nine or whatever, it wasn't just There's also a story. Well, said Jack Hare to the sun, I can carry your your magic ring. I can do it in three nights, you know. So there is this level of narrative going on. Okay. Um, it, it would be it would be puzzling if you didn't know about the treasure hunt because you're like, what is going on in the pictures? Why are there all these right uh, hot air balloons and uh, compasses and numbers and that's letters? That's true and, of every. I mean, if you if you've ever read Goodnight Moon, yeah. there's an awful lot going on. Do you think? That, I think Goodnight Moon is going to be in the omnibus at some point. But do you think there is a treasure buried somewhere in a in a could be? We'll have to we'll have to read it together. <laughs> so anyway, so Ken is on stage with a scarf around his face, like he's not playing along. No, he's uh, he's intentionally muddied his appearance to look like a kind of a, a, a man of the earth, some kind of a rough-hewn ruffian. Hedgehog? <laughs> Perhaps he's a hundred hedgehogs crammed into a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at some point, shortly thereafter, a local newspaperman, thinking this guy's story seems fishy, starts looking into Ken Thomas discovers, in fact, that Ken Thomas does not exist. Right. Ken Thomas turns out to be a uh, assumed name of a guy named Dougald Thompson. Who Better name, frankly. F- yeah, Dougald. Yeah. It's, it's the average British name. For every child named Dougald, there's a child named something slightly weirder than Dougald uh-huh. and one named slightly more normal than Dougald. <laughs> Ken White. <laughs> there's also millions of, du- yeah, there's also millions of Dougalds. And I say this as a Kenneth. I'm, and you're a Roderick. You have a weird, very British name, too. But it's Welsh. Look you. Um, Dougal Thompson is not a man of the soil with soil under his fingertips. In fact, uh, in the public record, you can see that he owns a local computer company called Hairsoft related to rabbits uh, that he has recently formed. Looking back at his past. This gets curiouser and curiouser. To use a rabbit hunting uh, <laughs> metaphor. Uh, his, his last business venture in which companies, a failed thing in which companies could stamp their corporate name into the bricks of their actual uh, facade, <laughs> which did not sell any bricks, called clay print or something. It turns out he was, he was one of the managers with another guy named John Gard. John Gard, it turns out, yes. was the current boyfriend of Veronica Roberts. Okay. Veronica, are you following? I am so Veronica far. Roberts, we are now four steps removed. Veronica Roberts, it turns out, was also the ex-girlfriend 
of painter Kit Williams Uh-oh. and happened to be the woman with whom he had a picnic in Bedfordshire oh, no. years Veronica before. Veronica gave up the ghost. So Williams to this... The, the, the she rabbit. Didn't, she didn't give up the ghost. She gave up the hair. She gave up the hair. Veronica. 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 I'm I'm very disappointed in her right now. I really am too. Uh, it comes out that so Kit Williams to this day claims that he never told her anything, but she must have just been observant. Sure, he's, and he and, stuck his penknife in the ground on the equinox at there, where where the finger was pointing, and then stuck in a magnet. <laughs> no, honey, that's just uh, I'm just it's just what I like to do on yeah. a first date. <laughs> Geocaching, just picnic stuff. Uh, so John Gard and Dougal Thompson apparently were able to worm the answer out of her, you know, and it was kind of like the thing where Nora Ephron was telling everybody at parties who Deep Throat was. Yeah. I think she unwisely said, oh, I bet I know where it is. I totally saw him goofing around with a magnet once. Right. And they were able to convince her that they would donate the prize to, uh, some kind of, uh, wildlife conservancy that she was a fan of. <laughs> and with that, armed with that, they were able to get the answer out of her and they went and dug up this park in Bedfordshire until they found the hair and then, and then invented some story of how they had done it. And a poor story at that. And these two physics teachers had actually come up with the real solution two months before. They just, they just they didn't wanted write to, a letter and they wanted it to be a sport, right? They, they, they were good sports about it and they figured no one else were, was as smart as they were. They thought everyone in Britain would be, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, fair play and yeah, all of that. Of course. What, what? Ha ha. Uh, and, um, so it turned out, this never came out at the time. At the time, people were very excited. Oh, the hair has been found. Right. And what happened was this led to, the legacy of this was it led to the fad of dozens of copycat quests. Because the, when the book sold millions of copies, everyone thought, oh, good, we'll just do this 50 times and everyone will sell millions of copies. Sure, let me get my Mac paint out. The American equivalent in 84 was called Treasure of the Golden Horse. The Golden Horse has never been found. Say what? Um, there's some. Uh, Apparently, the author didn't have a girlfriend. <laughs> I think it was actually found in su- such a suspicious way that everyone agrees that the publisher had uh, the contest ended without it being found, and everyone agreed the publisher had just made the thing impossible and had, had tweaked enough clues that you really could not solve it because then no one would earn the million dollar prize. Right. Um, but there are still some outstanding ones. Uh, in 1982, the secret of the twelve casks began, in which little buried. Earthen casks were hidden in 12 U.S. cities. In Montiardo. Uh, two years later, the one was found in Grant Park in Chicago. Uh, then um, 20 years went by until one was found in Cleveland. One was dug up in Boston just a few months ago. What? Uh, really? Yeah, they were um, some kind of uh, renovation of a baseball diamond. Uh, and, and, you know, now that there's an internet community around these, there's clue sharing. Right. People, you know, hundreds of people have been convinced that it was somewhere Paul Revere related in Boston, people had zeroed in on this park. In fact, but it was uh, under second base on the baseball. On the apparently, baseball it was field. near home plate. But it, it wasn't until the thing got dug up by the parks department that some enterprising guy went by and said, "Hey, did you guys find anything?" And at first, they said no, and then they were like, "Oh, you mean this golden whatever?" Um, <laughs> somewhere in the Rockies is hidden a, a bronze chest full of gems. Uh, if you could solve Forrest Fenn's poem. There's a million dollars of gems somewhere in the Rockies right now. One million dollars? Was it worth a million dollars when they buried it, or is it worth a million dollars now? This is a more recent iteration, so I don't know how inflation has affected it. I mean, the gem market ebbs and flows. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this was before uh, we went off the gold standard. I don't even know. It's a a chest with 100,000 bitcoins that were worth $100 when it was buried. Right around the time the uh, rabbit was dug up, Rod Argent, the former keyboard player from the zombies, the real zombies, uh, and later the lead singer of Argent, Argent. that we've discussed, uh, you know, friend of the program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rod, we call him. uh, his, His masquerade musical debuted on the West End. I guess he'd become friends with Andrew Lloyd Webber and, in fact, was the played the keyboards for the first five weeks of Cats. Really? So if you if you heard Cats early, the guy playing the ba-ma-ma-ma-ma was also the guy playing the organ part on, on Time of the Season, and she's not there. Well, when I saw you doing Masquerade, I thought that maybe this was a reference to the song from Phantom of the Opera. Masquerade. Do the masquerade. The only musical you've ever seen. The only musical I've ever seen. Uh, and that's the only song from it I remember. I wonder if it inspired Andrew Lloyd Webber, because this would have been a few years before must, Phantom. Must have done. We never know. But Kit Williams, discouraged by his, you know, the what fame had done to his life and then kind of the ignominious end to which his 
his devious clues had come. What? Well, when did the physicists actually get credited with the solution? Um, because it would have had to have... Uh, it may have been in Bamber Gascoigne's book. It, it was years later, and the public had lost interest. So everyone knew about the hidden hair, and it's just like the correction. Right. You know, somebody goes on Fox News and says something red meaty, and then later goes on CNN and says, just kidding, Ukraine probably didn't. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's the same thing where nobody followed the retraction. So I think to this day, you know, millions of people remember trying to dig up grandma's lawn because she had harebells planted, but nobody remembers... These the, two people that actually solved the The mystery. drama that followed, much less the two right. physics guys from Surrey or wherever it was who actually followed it. But Williams disappeared. He um, he disappeared into rural Gloucestershire and... Uh, he had a bunch of money. I mean, yeah. nobody likes the fame, but... But it's true. It's nice to have the money. Yeah, he doesn't talk about that in the interviews that yeah, he right. got. That he got. You know, his royalties must have come to hundreds of thousands of pounds. But yes, he did very well. But he did not capitalize on it. He never exhibited for thirty years. Wow. He did not show a single painting. Did he continue to paint? That's what happened. It turned out to be a Salinger scenario in two thousand. Uh, what would it be? Two thousand nine, I guess, the thirtieth anniversary. The BBC caught up with him, and he had said no to so many interviews over the years. But these guys crucially said what you always say. We don't want to talk about the hits. We, we want to see what you're doing now. Yeah, right. Yeah, the hair is it doesn't matter. Like, have you been painting? It's like, uh, we're going to play a new song for you right now. <laughs> Woo! So that's what you always want to hear. Um, and so he agrees to do an interview. because he And it turns out he has painted 300 extraordinary canvases that he has never exhibited and has maybe just sold locally to lucky village gentry. What? Who now have these beautiful, ornate canvases hanging in their front rooms of their little country houses. Uh, he, his work, this is not super relevant, but his work has become less childlike and, in fact, explicitly sexual. He really likes drawing these... Um, Horny badgers. <laughs> yeah, these badgers are up to no good. Kind of. Often his paintings will have... He's gotten a lot older, and not coincidentally, his paintings often have these young... English rose girls kind of in a state of nude or semi-dressed shock. Right. They look like the girl on the cover of, who's the prepubescent girl on the cover of the Blind Faith record or the oh yeah uh, well, the Roxy Music album play, or whatever. Is she playing with a, with a, are, the are these girls all playing with spaceships? Yeah, they've all got little uh, rocket planes. <laughs> no, in fact, they're playing with, it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland thing where they're in bucolic settings, you know, so they're nymphs or whatever. Sure. But they've all got kind of older men, kind of pan types leering at them. Mm -hmm. And he gets local mm -hmm. girls to model for oh, him. Okay. This, yeah. And the BBC documentary is like, you know, they, they get in his studio as he has some local girl like take off her top and I'm like, wow, like, I guess in 2009, nobody was, <laughs> nobody was asking questions. It yet. wasn't that long ago, and but, yet so long ago. But he's producing, he's producing beautiful kind of erotic art that local Gloucester people are, are just snapping up because on the London market, these would probably be you know, tens of thousands of, right. of pounds. Um, but he turned his back on celebrity. The, uh, the hair wound up bought by a buyer in Egypt and uh, spent the next... 20 years in the Far East. It was eventually brought back in 2012 and, and showed briefly in the Victorian Albert. And Kit got to see his hair again. Um, but uh, for 20 years, he had lost his hair. Well, well, I don't want to split hairs. It's going to happen to all of us. And that concludes Masquerade. Entry 763.PS10424. Certificate number 14162. In the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Ken and I have been gradually laying out a series of clues in our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram <laughs> feeds. If you read every fourth letter of every eighth tweet. <laughs> and eventually, it will all lead you to our treasure trove that we've buried under this bunker where we record. We kind of did that, though, with the... Uh with the codes and the certificate numbers and whatnot. Like you, like for like a couple hours on the first day we recorded, you and I thought that would be fun. It was. And now we're chained into it forever. It was fun, uh, and then it got solved, and we never we never re-upped and made it made something new or more difficult. It was fun. That was an interesting test case because, you know, as the show, you know, as hundreds and then thousands of people started listening to the show, you know, people got interested in these numbers. 
and people started to crowd solve it, but it took a while. It did. You know, it took a few months and then the first part fell. Yeah. And then the second part and then it maybe after a year, like the it, the, the certificate numbers. It did take quite a while and, and and there was a lot of speculation that it was not solvable or that it was a, a red herring. Well, I kept trying to tell people, by the way, this is not some beautiful, elegant puzzle. John and I just came up with it in 12, 10 minutes on a conference table shaped like a question mark. Yeah. It was, it, <laughs> it was fun though. It was, it was, uh, and, and, it, and we continue to do it and it continues to... To uh, befuddle us week after week because we have to, <laughs> right. you have to consult your Bible and the and a certain edition of the dictionary, <laughs> a, a very specific dictionary, a Bible and uh, the MPAA website, or else the right. show cannot proceed. Right, right, and we, we we've yet to we've yet to fail at it. Um, at Ken Jennings is where one half of the clues reside. At John Roderick is where the other half of the clues reside. So you have to follow both. Accounts on Twitter. You can only solve the puzzle by getting Watson and John's co-passenger in mm-hmm. a room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, no, not in a room. In a in a, in a Delta uh, like executive comfort seat <laughs> with Watson in the middle. Uh, email us, please. Your solutions. Do not try and dig up our rabbit at theomnibusproject at gmail dot com. Um, please avail yourself uh, or selves of our Futurelings Facebook group who are fun, and our Reddit uh, group, who are also super fun, like everything on Reddit. Probably equally fun. Um, You can mail us your jeweled rabbits. Please do. At P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Please mail us a series of devious clues. Hey, uh, Dawn just sent, actually did send us two envelopes, one of which says, John's clue and Ken's answer to clue. Really? So people are sending us... You, you just found this in our mail right now. Yes. I, I'm just opening. Do you want to see your clue? Well, yeah. Your clue says... Well, no, wait a minute. Why are you opening my clue? Control freak. Oh, here we go. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Okay, my clue is... It says Jeopardy! Exclamation point. Clue number two, stipulation. If this is on your Friendly Fire podcast list... Go to clue number three, category World War II films for $5. Um, there is a picture of um, someone in, a, in like Holocaust prison clothes and someone else in a different outfit, and they are having a stressful encounter. Clue number two, this 1975 Italian film was nominated for four Academy Awards in 1977. It went through a time warp. Let's do that again. Do you think it's related to the? Do you think it's related to the? Um, is the movie? Is, is the picture still from the movie, or are these two different movies? I think the picture is still from the movie. Clue number three: the first woman to be nominated for best director at the Academy Awards was the director of Above Movie. These are all things that you should know. It's Lena Wertmuller who was nominated for Swept Away. All but right. is but is that the movie they're referring to? She must have done a war movie as well. What it was swept away about? Uh, to uh, people, Giancarlo Giannini and some woman on an island. Hmm. It's, ship, it's a shipwreck, uh, Blue Lagoon kind of a scenario. Feminist take. Uh, it was remade with Madonna. Uh, so no, I think that she directed this film, but that is not swept away. I was just looking at her other work. Seven Beauties? Is that a wharf time film? Hmm. Should I, are you, are you ready to admit defeat? Yes. I, I I have no idea about any of that stuff because I'm not. A, oh look, look what's in the answer thing. Oh five dollars. It actually price. did say five dollars on the clues. It's not as good as a bejeweled rabbit, no. but but it is. You know, President Lincoln. Good job, free yep. the slaves. Yep, save the union. Somebody gave me money in one of these in the past, and I took it. So I guess this five dollars belongs to you. It turns out the answer is indeed what is Seven Beauties directed by Lena Vermeuler. Well so, done, Ken. You I, got there. I'm afraid I cannot give you the. Five dollars. I'm sorry. No, I never would have gotten that, and I'm impressed that you did. But, but that's one of the skills that you have. But we do have some lovely parting gifts for you. Uh, somebody, huh. somebody sent you a, a washer and dryer. <laughs> Ricearoni. Somebody sent you, um, congratulated you on your uh, anniversary of sobriety, and sent you some stickers that oh, thank say you. that's not for a couple. That's not for about a week or more. But thank you. Very He's much either very late or very or, or slightly early. So he sent you stickers saying. I, I lost the stickers. Sober is cool or something. These are very oh, cool. Vintage. No Vintage, you're not gonna you're not gonna put those on your water bottle. Sober is cool. Oh, here it is. Sober is sexy. Do we like that oh, better? Oh no, not that's not true either. 
<laughs> it's neither cool nor sexy. It's it's both inaccurate. Yeah, it's, and not, it's not connected to those things. Do you uh, do you don't you think that um, there must be some sober person who is sexy? Oh yeah, but it's but it's not related, right? I, I mean, see. if you're go- if you're going to say which is sexier, like a drunken hot mess who's on the verge of. Total destruction. I think I may see some. I think I see some trouble <laughs> or, with your life choices. Or like here. a sober and measured person who's doing well in life. At least for me, you're not dating the librarian. The sexy one is the one in the torn dress who has who has a broken heel. But here, this is very good vintage um, vintage postcards of Johnny Appleseed. Oh, look at those! For, and there's two, one for each of us from the Johnny Appleseed Festival in Lisbon, Ohio. These are. Uh, these are delightful, and I lost the envelope, so I don't even know who to thank for them. But these are fantastic. He's got a pan over his pot over his head and everything. That's nice. Did you just pick which one you wanted and and give me the other? Here's Is that both. You... you get first pick, even though you are not familiar with the oeuvre of Lena Vertmuller. No, no, no. I think that you, I think you picked correctly. I think you you get the one with the 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 pot on the head, and I'll get the one where he's he's old. He's old because and... you're older than me and listen to Blondie in high school. He has joie de vivre. vivre. Um, if you love this show, as I know you do, because you've listened all the way through this outro, uh, consider contributing to the manufacture of it now that we are, I think, as of today. Now, this is not as of when this show is broadcast, because right. two months ago to we're, you. Spe- we're speaking to futurelings, but as of today for us, I believe we are finally 100%. Free of the iHeartRadio network, is that true? Uh, is today is today our our emancipation our, our day? emancipation day? That is, I believe, true, and we're celebrating by rolling out tiers and uh, and perks for our our Patreon supporters. supporters. So go to Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project and um, and uh, give to the show. We appreciate it very much. Really, it's probably a better marketing move to do this before we do a six-minute digression on the work of Lena Vertmuller. Right. We should probably do the Patreon URL more promptly. L- L- to the six of you still listening. <laughs> we'll, uh, what we should do is uh, is do a separate, because we no longer have ads from uh, iHeartMedia, <laughs> we can do our own advertisement where we advertise ourselves. The uh, bonus content rolled out to our devoted supporters, by the way, includes... Uh, bonus episodes includes a monthly addendum yes. to the omnibus in which we uh, are able to get to some of the material that our contemporary listeners have reminded us that uh, did not appear in the previous entry. So That's for- right. Presentlings like to inform us that we missed some crucial fact. It's weird that people who would listen to a show by us are completists. <laughs> and so we're going to cover some of that uh, that additional material and uh, in some cases, we will accept it, and in some cases, we will deny its entry. We will debunk it. Also, I will play harmonica. Do you want to do that during the rest of the outro? Yeah, L- g- keep going. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, as the sun sets behind the distant hills, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings... Maybe our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be... <laughs> this thing tastes like potpourri. <laughs> you gotta do it. One more sentence. Uh, you right, can sorry, do sorry, this. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> but if providence allows, you may see us coming back around the ridge one late summer evening for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.